Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, as a church and obviously as a pastor, we confess that our speech has not always been edifying. There have been many times when we have not loved as we should have or been as careful with our tongue as commanded. Our speech betrays our hearts and our hearts are wicked, desperately wicked. Many times we seek to build ourselves up by tearing others down. And unfortunately, we are not always aware that we are doing that. Yet you have given us grace And you have implanted a new heart in all those that have repented of dead works and put their trust in the works of Christ. And we are now enabled to please you with our speech and our tongue. Father, we join together to pray with the saints of old as they were commanded in Romans 12 to let our love be genuine and to abhor what is evil and to hold fast what is good. To love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor. To not be slothful or lazy in our zeal, but fervent in the spirit to serve the Lord. To rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. We're to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We're to bless those who persecute us and bless them, not curse them. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We desire to live in harmony with one another. We're not to be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And we're never to be wise in our own sight. You've commanded that we're not to repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on us, to live peaceably with all. With every head bowed and every eyes closed, I would ask you to take a moment to ask, is that there more that needs to be said? to our Father in this confession. And Father, we pray now that you would just envelop us in your grace, that we may give that grace to others in that time of need. And Father, that you restore and heal. And Lord, that we may truly love as a church as God has called us to do. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Good morning. All right, so this morning we're going to continue in Mark, as we've been doing over the last three or four weeks. It's kind of interesting. For any of you who've ever taught before or preached or anything like that, you're kind of given a passage of Scripture, teach this, preach this, whatever it may be, sometimes the sermon kind of just flows right out. It just comes out pretty easily. But sometimes it almost feels like the text is fighting with you. It just doesn't come out as easy. And I was kind of experiencing that this week as I was preparing for the sermon And I was reflecting on it this morning and just kind of praying and thinking and I wonder why. And and I think what I came to is that this passage that we're going to go through and we'll read it in a minute, it's a heavy passage. It's heavy in this sense because what we're dealing with today, just these two verses, is really the sum of all of Jesus' teaching. The way Mark presents it is when Jesus comes onto the scene, this is his first sermon, if you will, his first proclamation and really sets the tone for the rest of his ministry. It's what he came to do. And so, as I was thinking about that and looking at this passage, 
the burden of it was just weighing on me. This is the message that God incarnate, Jesus, coming into the world, brought to us. This message we're going to hear today. Uh, this message that Jesus proclaims. And that's heavy. I think a lot of times as Christians, or even as people who aren't Christians, we're kind of so familiar with the Bible, or so familiar with a passage like this, that we kind of just let it go over our heads. But we, we can't do that. I mean, we have to hear these words in all the seriousness, all the good news that's in them for what they are. Uh, words from God that he says to us. I mean, God only came incarnate into history one time, and this is the message he brought. So I hope that that helps you this morning to awaken your soul, awaken your mind to say, I'm going to try to hear this new this morning. Maybe you've heard this passage a million times, maybe you've read it a million times like I have, but I feel like this week, just for me, God kind of said, hold on, I'm not just going to let you get off that easy. And I hope that he speaks to us all that way this morning, because that's what we need. We need not to just coast, but hear God's word fresh this morning. So let me start by reviewing. I want to do just a quick summary of kind of where we've been in Mark so far, um, because like we've been talking about in Sunday school as we study the Bible, context is king, right? If we just pull passages out and preach on them, not relating to the context, really what's the point? We're just kind of picking and choosing our own meaning. So to understand what Jesus is going to say here, we need to understand what's been going on in Mark. So remember how Mark started off. Mark's gospel starts at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel means good news. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ that came from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we know immediately that we're looking for good news. This whole book of Mark is supposed to be about the good news of Jesus. So we should have our ears attuned as we're going through the series, as we're reading through on our own. We should have our ears attuned to, okay, well, what's this good news about Jesus? Or what's this good news that Jesus brings us? And we may have our preconceived ideas of what that is, but again, we need to let God speak to us through the Bible, not just think we know everything. So we're looking for good news. So as we study through Mark together, let's continue to ask ourselves that question, and we'll do that this morning. In other words, Mark is trying to tell us this good news. That's why he wrote his book. He starts off the first line like that, I wrote this book to tell you about the good news. So let's look for that. And so the next thing he does is he goes to John the Baptist. And we looked at this. John comes, Mark immediately tells us, fulfilling a handful of Old Testament prophecies about a prophet that would come as a forerunner to the Messiah. So someone who would come before the Messiah, and we'll kind of get into that concept a little bit later, but someone who would come as a preview, if you will, as kind of a coming attractions of the things to come. Like a movie trailer, you know, you watch the movie trailer, okay, that's what the movie's going to be about. Well, now I want to go see the movie. The same way John the Baptist came before Jesus to say, hey, Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. It's time to repent and turn to the kingdom, turn to God. And so we saw that. So John came, John preached, and Jesus validated John's ministry as Jesus came to John and said, I want to be baptized by you. He kind of united their ministries and said, he was the forerunner, I am the Messiah. And at his baptism, remember, a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And that phrase right there coming from the voice of God is actually two quotations from the Old Testament. One from Psalm 2-7 and one from Isaiah 42-1. If you look at those passages in their context, again, those are two passages that every Jew would have known was talking about the Messiah. So God's not just telling Jesus that he loves him and that he's pleased with him. He is, but it's much more than that. He's saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one I've been promising. That's what he's saying. And so Mark, again, like all the other gospel writers, is indicating to us that Jesus himself 
is the fulfillment of this messianic office. He's the promised one of the entire Old Testament. He's the one that has been coming and has been promised since the garden, really, since Genesis 3.15, when God told Adam and Eve, I will one day send a son to crush the head of the serpent. He's the promised king the Jews have been waiting for. He's the promise of all the prophets of old. And after Jesus is driven out into the wilderness for a time of testing and tempting, as we talked about last week, we saw that for 40 days he fasted successfully. For 40 days he was tempted by Satan himself, Satan doing everything he could to distract Jesus off the path to the cross. And he resisted the devil successfully for 40 days, thereby further proving himself to be the Messiah. We see then that Jesus returned to the region around the Sea of Galilee, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't come back for a time of relaxing, for a nice vacation. We're going to see today that he came back to proclaim a message. And that's the first thing he does when he gets back to Galilee. And so that's where we find ourselves today in the text. He's come back out of the wilderness into Galilee. And as he's coming into Galilee, that's where we find ourselves. So turn with me to Mark 1, 14 through 15. We're going to be looking at these two verses today. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus comes into Galilee. The first thing he says is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's so much here that we can't just get to everything, but my goal for today is to help you understand these two verses so that When you read them, you go, I know exactly what's going on here. I know what Jesus is talking about. I know what Jesus means when he says these things. And again, this is so important for us to understand because, I mean, this is really the burden of Jesus' entire ministry. Really, what I want to do this morning is just kind of go through the passage piece by piece and talk about each piece. And so the first piece that we take is now after John was arrested. Well, what we're seeing here is a transfer of focus. The very beginning of Mark's gospel was focused on John. Like we talked about the coming attractions, the trailer, But Mark's really just dealing with John as quickly as he can to just get him out of the way to talk about Jesus. That's why there's so much less than in some of the other Gospels. Mark just wants to talk about Jesus. And so we see that John's role was extremely important, but ultimately he was just a shadow compared to Jesus. He was a herald, a proclaimer, just like all their prophets before him. But now the message that he was proclaiming, the person he was proclaiming about has come onto the scene. So his role is done. And so we see that John gets arrested. Mark doesn't go into further what happens to him until later. But we see that the herald is now out of the picture. You know, it's kind of like when you eat one of those like five-course meals. You don't keep the side dish once the main course gets there. You don't keep eating the asparagus or whatever it is once the steak comes. I mean, some of us do. I know. I live with one of them. But you get the illustration. And so we see John was arrested. John's out of the picture. So now we're focused in on Jesus. And the next phrase we see is that Jesus came into Galilee. Now, there's one important difference between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. Remember, John lived out in the desert. He was a wild man. He clothed himself in camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey and lived out in the desert in the wilderness. And so when people wanted to hear John preach, they did exactly what the text says. They went out into the wilderness and heard him preach, and lots of people did. But Jesus does the exact opposite. He's on a different mission. Jesus goes from the desert into the city where all the people are. And so we immediately kind of see a difference in roles. 
John's proclaiming about Jesus. People are going out to him. But Jesus, now that he's on the scene, comes to the people. And we see that the first people he comes to are the people in Galilee. And that's one of those things, just one of those little phrases, Jesus came into Galilee, that I think sometimes because we're not living in this world, we don't understand all the things going on at that time that we just pass over. Okay, he came into Galilee, great. But there's a lot of significance packed into that little phrase. And so I want to help you see that this morning. It's a short little phrase. We skip right over it, but it's significant. And it's no coincidence. And that's the thing I want you to see this morning. Jesus' ministry was not a ministry of him walking around going, "Um, well, I'm in the desert. What's the nearest town? I guess I'll just go to Galilee and start preaching there. It wasn't like that. Everything in Jesus' life is significant and has purpose to it. There's nothing that's just a coincidence. There's nothing that just happened by happenstance. You know, just like we've talked about before, Jesus didn't go to the cross on accident. He was, from the beginning of his life, headed to the cross. Same reason, Jesus didn't come into Galilee on accident. He came in on purpose. And the question is why? What significance does it have? The real question is, why didn't he begin his ministry in Jerusalem, the holy city? That's where all the really religious Jews were. Why did he begin his ministry in Galilee? And what does that say about his ministry? Well, you see, Galilee was a city in the northernmost parts of Israel. So if you're looking at a map of Palestine in the time of Jesus, that area of the world, here's Jerusalem down here, here's Samaria, and here's Galilee up here. So it's about 70 miles north of Galilee. That's a long way to travel back in those days. And Galilee is where Jesus spent most of his ministry. Now what's interesting about that, again, is Jerusalem was the holy city of the Jews. Jesus didn't spend most of his time there. Jesus himself was Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is in Galilee. So even what people called him was, this guy's a Galilean. You might remember at some point in the Gospels, some of the people say, well, he can't be the Messiah because he's from Galilee. The Messiah is supposed to be from Bethlehem. Well, they obviously just didn't know that he was actually from Bethlehem originally. Point being, everybody called him a Galilean. He grew up there. He spent a lot of time there, most of his ministry. And so Galilee, being in the northern part of Israel, happened to be on the path that led into Israel from all the other nations north of them. Well, all the other nations north of them in the history of Israel are all the bad guys. Assyria, Babylon, Persia. When they came into Israel, they came through Galilee. That's how they came. And so as you can imagine, in the ancient world, Galilee got trampled every time an invading army came in. They got just wiped out every time. And every time an army came through, some people would stay behind. They'd take some Israelites with them, whatever it may be. And so what happens is, by the time you get to the first century, Galilee was a melting pot of cultures. The Jews from Galilee were kind of known by the Jews in Jerusalem as like the liberal Jews. They're very worldly. They're multicultural. They're kind of influenced by all these pagan ideas. They're the worldly ones. They're the ones that listen to rock music. So that's where Jesus went to. That's where Jesus spent most of his ministry. Jesus didn't directly go to the people who thought they were the holiest, that they were the religious ones. They had it all together. Jesus didn't go there. To kind of help you see even more of this tension, I pull this quote from R.T. France. He's a commentator. He says this in regards to Jesus being identified as a Galilean. He says this, Even an impeccably Jewish Galilean in first century Jerusalem was not among his own people. In other words, A Galilean Jew going to Jerusalem knew that he wasn't among his own people. He was as much a foreigner as an Irishman in London or a Texan in New York. His accent would immediately mark him out as not one of us. And all the communal prejudice of the supposedly superior culture of the capital city Jerusalem would stand against his claim to be heard even as a prophet, let alone 
as the Messiah, a title which, as everyone knew, belonged to Judea. So what he's saying is, if Jesus wanted people to recognize him as the Messiah in Jerusalem, he wouldn't have gone to Galilee. Because they would immediately, as they did, just dismiss him offhand because he was from Galilee. Even the way he talked would have given him away that he was from Galilee. There's another instance where Peter's talking to someone in Jerusalem, and they're like, you're a Galilean. I can tell by the way you're speaking. Right? So he had an accent. Point being, Jesus obviously didn't care about this type of thing. I hope when you read that, you understand that he's identifying with people that were already on the dregs of the Jewish society. They weren't the holy ones. That's really big, and it's not a coincidence. And it actually fulfills directly a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, he writes this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, where Galilee is. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. So in Old Testament times, symbolically, Galilee kind of symbolized God's people in bondage and darkness. And that's where Jesus came first. Jesus wasn't afraid of darkness. He wasn't trying to only go to the people who would be like all clean and have everything right. He went straight into the darkest part. He wasn't afraid of that. He wasn't afraid to even be identified with those people. You never see in the Gospels an instance where someone says, hey, aren't you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, well, I'm not from Nazareth. Don't don't identify me with those people. He never says that. He identified with those people. And so the Messiah came first to this land of deep darkness. Not to the land of religious Jews, but to the land of the worldly Jew. And it just doesn't make sense until you consider and realize that Jesus came, like he said, to save the sick, not the healthy. He came to save the sinner, not the righteous person. And this would be a constant theme throughout his ministry, as we'll see in Mark. Jesus came to bring his message to those who are in need, not to those who think they have it all together. To the sinner, the sick, the poor, the humble, not the righteous, not the people who think they're fine, not the people who have it all together. Jesus came into Galilee. And we see the next thing he does. What does he do when he gets to Galilee? He immediately starts proclaiming the gospel of God. He didn't just come into Galilee and sit around and hang out. He came to proclaim the gospel or the good news of God. Even this simple statement betrays Jesus' messianic identity. Because even in the Jewish conception of the Messiah, the Messiah, the one they were waiting for, right? They're waiting for this prophet. One of the roles of this Messiah, this king that would come to them, was that he was going to be a herald of God. Just like John, he was going to be a prophet of one who would declare to them the good news of God. The victory announcement. That's what gospel Good news, that word translated, it's this idea of a victory announcement. They're proclaiming some type of good news. And in the ancient world, this word is used a lot when there would be a battle out in the wilderness. Right when the battle was won, the victorious side would send a runner. He would run all the way back to the home city, and he would proclaim the good news of the victory won. It's the same word they use for that. And so the Jews were waiting for this announcement of victory, this announcement of good news from this Messiah character they were looking forward to. And you can see this in the Old Testament scriptures, this idea of the Messiah being the one who would declare the good news of God to the Jews. And Isaiah 49 says this, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, speaking of the Messiah. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Same word. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
And so they believed the Messiah would be one who would come to them, proclaim the good news, and say, Behold, your God. In Isaiah 52, 7, we read this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so we see the Messiah was one who was to bring news of peace and happiness and salvation from God. We're starting to get a picture of it. Hey, that's what Jesus did. Yeah, that's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for the one who would come and say, your God reigns. And we'll see that later in our passage today. And again in Isaiah 61.1, we see this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus actually read this text and said, this is about me in his ministry. And so again, he's saying, you know that one who's supposed to bring good news? It's me and I'm here, right? So the fact that he's proclaiming the good news of God, is in his very nature of who he is as Messiah. One of the main reasons he came was to bring good news of peace, of happiness, of salvation from God. And to say to us, your God reigns, behold your God. And so again, all this to show you that Jesus in his ministry is not just a haphazard list of things he did. We're not looking at Mark as just, well, here's some of the things Jesus did. You might find that interesting. No, Mark is showing us that everything he did was to show himself to be this promised person, this Messiah, this king who's coming. Everything he did had significance, and not just for people back then. Think about it. We serve a God who proclaims good news to us. We serve a God who fulfills all of his promises in very visible ways. We serve a God who is faithful to us. So Jesus came to proclaim this good news about God. We can't take that for granted. We don't deserve good news. There's nothing in us that deserves good news from God. We shouldn't expect that. That's actually a surprise. I mean, when you read the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, you read, okay, they sinned. Okay, well, they should be judged now. I mean, that just makes sense. They had one thing not to do. They broke it. They, judgment should come. But even in Genesis 3.15, we see, well, there's going to be a promised one who will take care of all this. That's the surprise, you know, and I think sometimes... We, in our mind, we just expect the gospel and judgment becomes a surprise. Well, why is there judgment? We've got it completely backwards. The whole problem of the Bible is not how could a good God send people to hell, but how could a good God save anybody? Why is there good news? We've done nothing to deserve this. The point is, we serve a God who proclaims good news to us in spite of all those things. And so Jesus came to proclaim the good news of God. So what did he have to say? That's what we're looking at. He comes to proclaim the good news of God. Mark says... Here's what he said when he wanted to proclaim the good news of God. So understand that. When Jesus came, he said, I have good news about God. Here it is. This is what he said. Verse 15, he said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news. So the good news is, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. So what is that all about? What does that mean? The time is fulfilled is really important. Again, what we're looking at is this idea that Jesus is saying, I didn't just come out of a vacuum. I didn't just appear here. The time is fulfilled is this statement saying, everything that you've been waiting for, everything that the Old Testament has been pointing towards, everything that God's been doing in history up to this point, it's fulfilled. I'm here. I mean, these words are world-changing as far as things are going. He's literally declaring, okay, now... At this moment is the decisive moment you've all been waiting for, and it starts now. That's what he's saying. 
because I'm here. The time is fulfilled. You have to understand that this was the great longing of the Jewish people for hundreds, if not thousands of years. God had been making promises to people throughout the entire history of the earth, to Noah, to Abraham, to Adam and Eve, to Jacob, to Isaac, to David. All these promises just keep stacking up and stacking up and stacking up. And throughout the history, the Jewish people are getting conquered and they're just getting slammed by all these other nations and they're going, God, when is this time of fulfillment going to actually come? You keep saying you're going to restore the nation. You keep saying you're going to bring us this awesome king who's going to take care of us. Where is all this stuff? You can feel it as you read the minor prophets. There's this tension that people are just going, where is it all? We're ready. Come on. And so we see that Jesus comes on the scene and says, okay, it's now. The time is fulfilled. Here I am. The entire Old Testament is a thread of prophecies about this future person, about this future time. God had promised the Israelites that one day he would send a king who would lead them faithfully. One day he would restore them. He would send a faithful high priest. One day he would send a prophet with a special message. One day, the Old Testament prophets tell us, God promised that he himself would return to his temple, would return to Zion and rule among his people forever. And for 400 years after the last prophet, Malachi, prophesied, after he had finished his ministry, there was silence. For 400 years, there were no prophets. 400 years, I mean, that's almost twice as long as America's even been a nation. 400 years, nothing, nothing, silence. These 400 years, it's not like the people were just sitting around. I mean, they were getting slaughtered and humiliated by Greece, by Persia, by all these things. I mean, just horrible stories of desolation. And for these 400 years, again, they're crying out to God going, where is the Messiah? Where is this king? God, we're just getting destroyed. Where is this one who will bring good news to us? And again, here walks Jesus onto the scene and says, the time of fulfillment is right now. It's now. It has begun. A small phrase with earth-shattering significance. And it's really interesting. The Greek language has a word for just like time, like a general word for time, chronology and things like that. But that's not the word that's used in this passage. The word that's used in this passage carries a connotation of a specific time, of a decisive appointed moment. And so when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's not saying so many years have passed and so now I'm here. He's saying the decisive moment that God has appointed for the Messiah to come into history is fulfilled right now in this moment and starts now. The messianic age starts now because I'm here. I mean, that's huge. That's huge. This is a God-ordained moment. It's not a coincidence, again. It's Jesus saying the moment that God has appointed for all these things to be fulfilled is now. The question then is, what does that fulfillment bring with it? And that's the next phrase that he says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. So one of the things then that we see is the time being fulfilled means that the kingdom of God is near. Well, what in the world does that mean, right? The kingdom of God is, is one of those phrases that we hear so much and tend to understand so little. Which is strange because if you study scripture, it's really one of the main themes of the Bible. And it's definitely the main theme of Jesus' preaching and teaching. First of all, all the gospel writers except John introduced Jesus' ministry as proclaiming the kingdom of God at hand. P.S. Side note, in Matthew, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven means the same thing as the kingdom of God. His first sermon is on the kingdom of God. 
And almost all of the parables are parables that explain the kingdom of God is like this, right? So the kingdom of God is one of the main themes of Jesus' preaching. It's also an essential element of the apostles' preaching. The apostle Paul said the same thing. So we need to understand what it means or else we're missing a huge part of the Bible. We're missing a huge part of Jesus' ministry. And so that's what I want to look at. What does it mean? And what does it mean that it's at hand or near? So simply defined, this is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God means God's rule or God's kingship might be a better way to translate the phrase. See, part of the problem is the way that we conceive of the word kingdom. When you hear kingdom, when I hear kingdom, all these images of castles and horses and things pop into our head. And generally what pops into our head when we think of kingdom is a place or a land. This is the kingdom of blank. But that's not what this phrase is saying. It's talking about a rule. It's a concept. It's not a specific place. At least that's not the main meaning of it. It's a dynamic relational concept, not a geographical concept. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near or at hand, he doesn't mean, well, if you just take three steps to your right, you'll be in the kingdom of God. It's not one of those things. He's saying God's rule, God's kingship, God's reign over us is near. And again, Jesus is not pulling this concept out of nowhere. He didn't invent this concept. All throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is referred to and referenced as a king, as God who rules with kingly authority. And ultimately, the idea of authority is fundamental to the very idea of a God in general. A God without authority isn't much of a God at all. But humans had rebelled against God's authority. Israel had rebelled against God's authority from the very beginning, and even throughout the whole story of God's people, even after he repeatedly saved them, gave them grace, they continued to reject his authority, reject his rule, reject his kingship over them. And so we see then is Israel doesn't want God as their king. They say, give us a king like the nations. We want like an actual human king, which is incredibly insulting to God. And you can see that that eventually led to their demise. But amidst this, we see in Scripture, especially in Ezekiel, like I said, God promised that one day he would send them a new king, one unlike all these other kings, one who would rule them perfectly and conquer all their enemies, one who would love them and lead them, a king who would sit on the throne forever and who would rule all of humanity. This is the kingship that Jesus is claiming for himself. He says, I am that one. When we say Jesus Christ, Christ, again, as I've said before, is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. So it's like saying King Jesus, Jesus Christ. Messiah means anointed king. Christ means Messiah. They all mean the same thing. And so that's important. When you think Jesus Christ, think Jesus Messiah, King Jesus. Think that. Because again, it's one of those things, we say Jesus Christ so much that it almost loses its meaning. Remember, Christ is his title as king, the anointed king from God. So when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is near, it's near because he's near. It's here, it's near because he's here. He's near. He brings the kingdom because he brings the kingship of God. He brings the rule of God with him. It has been given to him and he bears that authority. Especially as we continue in Mark, you're going to see this. Because immediately after this passage, what starts happening? Jesus calls the disciples. He says, follow me. They get up and immediately follow. Jesus comes to a man with a demon. He says, get out of him. The demon immediately says, I'm out of here. So Mark's going to really strive to show us that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus, with God's authority, is here. And he's going to immediately start commanding people and demons to do things. And they're going to do them. Because he's the king. Misunderstanding this concept, though, leads to a lot of wrong ideas. Misunderstanding this is what 
has led a lot of people to think that we, the church, need to bring the kingdom here. You've probably heard people talk about that. Um, Sometimes people say, we need to bring heaven down to earth, or we need to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And a lot of times how that comes about is through social justice or things like that. Some people believe that if we just do enough charity work, we can bring the kingdom. Now, obviously those things aren't bad, but they aren't bringing the kingdom of God. It's a misunderstanding. Only God brings the kingdom of God. Only God brings his kingship. Only Jesus brings this kingdom. We can proclaim the good news of the coming of the kingdom, of the coming of Jesus, but we can't bring the kingdom. We have no power to do that. So the coming of the kingship of God, that's the good news. And as Americans, we obviously struggle with that idea. We struggle with authority. We hate dictators. We founded our nation in rebellion to a king. But let me tell you that God's kingship is radically different than any other kingship you could imagine. And God's kingship is is radically different because the king is radically different. The king is Jesus himself. Jesus the humble. Jesus the faithful. Jesus the healer. Jesus the savior. Why do we hate authority? Why do we hate kings? Because they oppress us. You look at the American Revolution, that was the whole thing. They didn't have ability to say anything. The government was just doing whatever they wanted. But this king doesn't. And here's why. He's not selfish. Earthly kings are selfish. They just are. That's what they do. Jesus is not. Jesus is king. He's absolutely perfect. He's absolutely just, absolutely merciful, absolutely humble, absolutely seeking our best at all times, absolutely loving, absolutely sinless, absolutely able to protect from all evil. And his kingship fulfills every desire that we would have in a ruler. Every desire. This kind of king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. See, the difference is that we really do all want a king when we think about it. If we could be guaranteed that that king would at all times, at every decision, at every juncture, make the best decision for the good of everyone, perfect decision making all the time, never sinning, always loving, always merciful, you would say, yeah, that sounds good. Friends, we have that. We have that in Jesus. Would you swear your allegiance to him this day? That's what it means that the kingdom of God is here. And is it here right now? Is the kingdom of God here right now? Well, the answer is yes and no. We use a big fancy word to describe it, inaugurated eschatology. All that means is inaugurated, it has begun. We inaugurate a president. That means their presidency has begun. Eschatology means the end. The end has begun. That's what we're talking about. In other words, Jesus' kingship is here now, but not fully. So he will bring it fully when he returns. But it's here now in that people have begun to bow their knees to him. So we see the kingship of Jesus here now, the rule of Jesus. We see other hints of it too, previews of it. When Jesus heals... He's previewing the kingdom. There's no more sickness in the kingdom, no more disease. When Jesus casts out demons, he's previewing the kingdom. Demons have no place in the kingdom of God. When Jesus is resurrected from the dead and when he calls forth Lazarus from the dead, it's a preview of the kingdom. There's no death in the kingdom of God. All those things are opposed to the kingdom of God. The book of Revelation is a description of the kingship of Jesus. But the truth is, as evident in Jesus' own teaching, not all will accept the authority of Jesus. Not all will submit to his kingship. And so he gives us The second part, which is the kingdom is here, the time is fulfilled, but it calls for a response. And he tells us the response is repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news. And so this is a call to turn from rebellion and cast yourself at the feet of Jesus. It's a call to believe the good news of Jesus' kingship that he brings. It's a call to trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. It's a call to give up every allegiance that you have and place your full allegiance on Jesus as king, Jesus as Lord. 
That's what repentance means. Repentance simply means turning away from actively pursuing sin and actively pursuing God. It's a conscious choice, a change of mind. It's a decision that says, I no longer want my life's aim to be my own pleasure or my own goals, but I want my life's aim to be God himself. Repentance is acknowledging that you are guilty before God and turning from your life of sin to life in pursuit of God. As we're closing here, just just think about that. Here's what repentance is not. It's not turning from breaking the rules to obeying the rules. I think that's what a lot of us think, that repentance is going from breaking the rules, oh, I shouldn't do that, so I'm repenting, I'm just going to obey the rules now. That's not what repentance is, because it doesn't work. Repentance is turning from breaking the rules, from sinning, turning to God and casting yourself upon his grace. And it's not a one-time decision, it's a lifestyle. As anyone here who can tell you, those who would call themselves followers of Jesus are called to a lifetime of repentance, daily, hourly, turning back to God because we are going to keep messing up. God knows that, he gets it, which is why the second part of that is repent and trust the good news, believe the good news. We have to repent and believe. Repentance by itself doesn't do anything. Faith by itself doesn't do anything. They're joined. As Charles Spurgeon called them, the Siamese twins. You can't separate them. You can't have repentance and faith separated. The only thing that saves us is our faith and our connection to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the King. Faith connects us to him, and this is the picture. We turn from pursuing sin with all of our being, and we turn to Christ. We fall at his feet, broken, understanding that there's nothing we could do, and we trust him. We trust him. We submit ourselves to his kingship, his rule. You see, nobody is too far gone to repent and receive full forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon, again, he says this, unbelief will destroy the best of us. Faith will save the worst of us. I say amen to that. So do you feel broken? Do you feel like one of the worst of us? Do you feel too far gone? Do you feel as if you failed God? Jesus' call to you today is repent. Believe the good news. Repent. The good news is that Jesus Christ went to a cross so that you could come to God. What you couldn't accomplish, Jesus did for you. All that is needed to come to God has been provided for you in the kingship of Jesus. And he welcomes all who would repent and trust in him into his kingdom. He says he will turn no one away who comes to him. So my question to you is today, would you come to him today? Do not delay. There's no point in delaying. Come to this glorious king. What could possibly hold you back? Guilt? He says, trust. I'm full of mercy. Is it sin? He says, come to me. I paid the price for that. Is it that you're not good enough? He says, I know, but I am. You come to him as you are. And this is the message of Jesus, the message of the church for the last 2,000 years. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Would you repent and believe that good news today? I just want to close with the lyrics of one of the hymns that Matthew Smith actually sang when he was here. These are just powerful words. And this is what the hymn says. This is my plea to you today. It says, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you. Full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Would you come today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you humbly in awe of your goodness, in awe of your mercy, in awe of Jesus, our King. Lord, and as a person who knows what it's like to feel poor and wretched, who knows what it's like to be broken, who knows what it's like to 
fight sin, to struggle with sin, Lord, I just thank you for your son Jesus. I thank you for his kingship, his mercy. I thank you that he would go to the cross for me, for us, and say, even though you cannot be under the kingship of God, I can make you and cleanse you so that you can. Lord, I thank you that Jesus welcomes us with open arms, that Jesus came to save sinners, not the righteous. Lord, I pray for all of us here today. Would you just show us our own sin? Would you show us how sinful each and every one of us in this room is? And as you show us that sin, and we feel that wretchedness, we feel that brokenness, Lord, would you show us your son and show us how amazing and good he is, Lord. And Lord, would you just help us to run into his arms and just fling ourselves at the feet of Jesus, the good king, the humble king, the faithful king. Lord, we thank you for your message. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.